from the HSLR podcast studio. You're listening to the Health and Safety Law Report. My name is Doug Jenks. And I'm Abby White. So over the last several episodes, we've been talking about OSHA's approach to the coronavirus. And uh, like everything with COVID, this is changing daily. And uh, especially now that we have a new administration in place. Of course, we have a new president, uh, and he uh, has actually recently appointed a new head of OSHA. So the new principal deputy assistant secretary of labor for occupational safety and health, say that 10 times fast, (laughs) is James Frederick. And Mr. Frederick uh, looked over his bio. He's a union guy. Um, he apparently was uh, involved in occupational health and safety for the unions, the labor unions, for the past three decades and spent about 25 years in HSE for the Department of the United Steelworkers Union. So I have to think that a former steelworkers uh, union advocate is, is possibly not going to be the best news for employers when it comes to OSHA. So that's that sort of happened first. And then President Biden then issued an executive order recently on January 21st, so a little more than a week ago, sort of outlining the steps that he uh, wants OSHA to take to protect employees from COVID-19. And that includes the possibility of an emergency temporary standard. It does. It does. And we've talked about some several states, state OSHA programs adopting those in, in a previous episode. But right. Uh, you're right. Yeah, this is this is where we find that. So really, uh, he has kind of five bullet points in this executive order, with the first one being um, he wanted within two weeks of this order for uh, Mr. Frederick to issue revised guidance to employers on work safe workplace, sorry, workplace safety and health. Uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's his first bullet point. The second one is the temporary standard that you just mentioned. He wants OSHA to consider whether an emergency temporary standard on COVID-19 and or a temporary standard regarding masks in the workplace or face coverings in the workplace are necessary. And if standards are necessary, he wants those to be issued by March 15th of this year. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty short time frame. It is. I, I have not known OSHA to act that quickly in the past, but... I guess we'll see what happens. As before you get on with the bullet points, as we yeah. have discussed over the last couple of episodes, OSHA has been relying on different standards and sort of putting them all together to create a fabric of regulation with regard to COVID-19. My thought would be, or I wonder, I guess is a better way to say, I wonder if OSHA is simply going to just sort of cobble all of that stuff that they've already been doing together into an emergency temporary standard, if they even do adopt an emergency temporary standard. What do you think? Well, I think that what we're seeing in this this guidance that they've issued in response to the first directive, the first, you know, issue, this revised guidance, I think that will actually be, I think this is actually potentially an outline for a temporary emergency standard. And it does pull in some of the other standards that we've already talked about, like respiratory protection, PPE, et cetera. Okay. So, yeah. and, and that's the guidance that just came out. So, excuse me. That's just the guidance that, that just came out today, which is January 29th, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, sorry. Go ahead and and continue with uh, what the executive order said. Oh, yeah. No, that's okay. I mean, the last three bullet points are, are um, 
maybe not as concrete. He wants OSHA to look at their enforcement efforts to date related to COVID-19 and see what they could have, I guess, done better to protect employees and maybe where they could best focus their efforts moving forward. And sort of related to that point is is the fourth bullet point, which is he wants OSHA to launch a national program to focus enforcement efforts related to COVID-19 on violations that would affect the greatest number of workers. Um, And then the last bullet point is he wants to uh, conduct a multilingual outreach campaign to advise workers and their representatives of what their rights are under applicable law. So that's kind of hearkening back to the 11C issue. So the retaliation issue, they want to make uh, workers aware of the fact that they have the right to complain about workplace safety and health issues, all workplace safety and health issues, but especially those related to COVID, uh, and for them to understand that they cannot be retaliated against by their employers for raising those complaints. Well, that's something that they already do. I mean, that's already required, is it not? It is. Yeah, it's already required for employers to train employees of their rights under 11C of the Act. So, And the uh, employers have a, there's a poster that you have to post. Indeed. Yep. That alerts them of that. Our government is not afraid of redundancy, though. (laughs) Correct. This is not surprising. Belts belts and suspenders, Abby. Right. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the new uh, guidance that uh, just came out today, then. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot of pages. It's 13 pages. But the upshot of this is they have outlined basically 16 elements um, of an effective COVID-19 program. I think OSHA really likes to throw around the word effective uh, as a means of saying it's not just good enough for you, employer, to have a policy. You actually have to implement it and make it work. And anytime we find some kind of violation, it's because you your, your program is not effective. So anyway, they, the, the elements that they talk about, um, oh, and by the way, there's heavy emphasis uh, in these beginning paragraphs on engaging workers and their union representatives in developing a COVID-19 prevention program. So that's, you know, I think we can kind of start to see where we're headed here. But essentially, the 16 bullet points are laid out in this guidance The first interesting one, and this is the first bullet point, they want you to assign a workplace coordinator who's going to be responsible for COVID-19 issues on your behalf. So basically like a point person Mm -hmm. uh, that's responsible for COVID-19. And probably a lot of employers that have bothered to implement a COVID-19 program already have a point person and they just maybe don't call it a workplace coordinator. But in any event, you got to identify an actual person who's responsible and then do your workplace um, hazard analysis, identify where and how workers might be exposed to COVID-19 in your workplace. Then the next bullet point is to identify measures you can take to limit the spread of COVID-19 uh, using the hierarchy of controls, which you and I have talked about in our first few episodes. Where- right. And all of this sounds like much of what is already included in guidance that OSHA has already issued. So hopefully none of this is going to be completely new. It shouldn't be like reinventing the wheel, I don't think. So far, so far. I mean, only I mean with your engineering time. controls and your administrative controls and doing what you can to assess the risk. I mean, there's only so many ways you can go about assessing the risk and addressing the risk. Right, right. But that's only that's only part of this. The next 
The fourth point they make is they want you to think about protections for workers. Tell me, tell me what you see wrong with this, Doug. Consideration of protections for workers at higher risk for severe illness through supportive policies and practices. Older adults and people of any age who have serious underlying medical conditions are at higher risk. Workers with disabilities may be legally entitled to reasonable accommodations. Where feasible, employers should consider reasonable modifications for workers identified as high risk. Do you see the problem there? It sounds like you are. There's, there will be discriminatory behavior on the on the part of employers. I would say. Yeah, like how about we don't single out people who are older uh, or with underlying health conditions? I mean, we don't have our employment law attorney on the line right now. Well, well if you discriminate against them in some way on that basis, then yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I have concerns about that one. I mean, even heat illness, not to get off track here, but, you know, in, in the Sturgill case, it was noted that you can't treat employees differently uh, in terms of protecting them from heat illness based on their age or their underlying health conditions. You can't ask them their age. You can't ask them if they have underlying health conditions. So how the heck are you supposed to know who you're supposed to be protecting differently than the rest of your employees? Anyway, I digress. And you you just mentioned the, the the Sturgill heat stress case, and that's something that we'll we'll talk about you know in a future episode. How's that? Right. Yes, that's good. Okay. So we're through number four. Um, I'm not going to list all of these because some of these are um, you know things that we've always known about you know protecting workers from COVID nineteen in the workplace. But another one that I thought was interesting, bullet point number eight. Uh, they want you to minimize the negative impact of quarantine and isolation on workers. Seems like they're worried about people feeling lonely. They say when possible, allow them to telework or work in an area isolated from others. If those are not possible, allow workers to use paid sick leave if available or consider implementing paid sick leave policies to reduce the risk for everyone at the workplace. So they want you to basically make it less problematic for people to work alone. Again, I think that's going to work okay for some types of employers, but not others. I mean, some employers are simply just not going to be able to do that. Right. Um, I mean, if you're a manufacturer, for example, it's going to be very difficult to have people sequestered or working remotely. Right. The next thing that I found interesting was they actually want, aside from, and I know we've spoken before about 11C, and I keep bringing it up, but this is sort of a heavy focus of this guidance is providing access for employees to complain or um, to bring concerns to their employer's attention without fear of retaliation. So they want you to basically take affirmative steps to implement protections from retaliation set up an anonymous process for workers to voice concerns about COVID-19 related hazards. So that's another one that I, I found interesting. They want you to make a COVID-19 vaccine or vaccination series available to eligible employees at no cost. Of course, as of the date of this recording, you can't actually do that because the vaccine is not widely enough available, but right. they at least want you to provide information and training on uh, the vaccine, its benefits, the safety of it. Uh, and then of course, don't distinguish between workers who've had the vaccine and those who've had it. So if you have folks uh, in your workplace who have been able to get the vaccine, but you have precautions in place like face covering, social distance, et cetera, those people who have been vaccinated still have to follow your precautions. 
Um, and then 16, Doug, is, is the bullet point that addresses the other OSHA standards and brings up the point that you made earlier, which is sort of pulling in the PPE requirements, the respiratory protection requirements, sanitation requirements, bloodborne pathogens, and the general duty clause. So I think if we were to see a temporary standard, my guess is this is sort of an outline for what that might look like. Yeah, and it sounds pretty comprehensive, very comprehensive. It is. And that's going to be uh, uh, some heavy lifting to get all of that in place by by March. But <laughs> by March. Yeah. But as I said, you know, if they are just going to be relying on what is already there and they have already issued that fairly comprehensive guidance, which we've discussed before, hopefully it won't be or I would imagine it shouldn't be all that difficult for them to put it together. And then the question will be, you know, what kinds of questions and issues does that raise that nobody has anticipated? You know, if you hastily put this in place, probably over the next couple of months, you're going to find all kinds of issues that nobody anticipated. Okay. Well, I think we should just cut it right there. This was a, uh, an important day because of, um, because of that, new guidance that came out. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about any of that? I don't think so. We okay. covered it. Well, as this develops further, we can revisit it and uh, make sure that we are doing our best to keep everybody abreast of what's of what's happening. Fair enough? Sounds good. Okay. So thank you all for listening. This is the Health and Safety Law Report. Just a reminder, we are lawyers. But we're not your lawyers, at least not while we're on this podcast. So if you need legal counsel, just please uh, seek out your attorney or seek out an attorney, and uh, hopefully that person can set you straight. So thank you for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time.